Thanks for downloading a 3CR podcast. 3CR is an independent community radio station based in Melbourne, Australia. We need your financial support to keep going. Go to www.3cr.org.au for more information and to donate online. Now stay tuned for your 3CR podcast. Hello and welcome to another episode of Lost in Science. It is the science that... Is it a science that you need or the science that you want? The science you deserve? I don't know. It's a bit of all three, perhaps. Um, we endeavour to explore all motivations of science. Um, don't we, Claire? We sure do. We sure do. And, you know, um, I have to say, our show is probably different things to different people, isn't it? It is. It's. I, I like to think, though, that it is science to everybody. <laughs> well, I hope so, Chris. Yeah. Um, speaking of science and evidence and those sort of things, Claire, yeah. what kind of um, fascinating research have you got to impart well chris if i said what is the most elusive rarest parrot even um in australia what would you say my mind goes straight to the night parrot of course (gasps) but it wouldn't have a few years ago because this was a bird that was believed extinct until recently is that right well that's right for much of the 20th century the night parrot was believed to be extinct and then um and but but very recently um you know in the last week or so new research um has come out from the csi road that and researchers have announced that they have sequenced the night parrot genome so this bird that's pretty much gone from extinction and existing only in the hearts and minds of birders um everywhere this incredible sort of um, very cryptic, uh, nocturnal parrot, to now in the last sort of 15 years or so being described, being seen, being heard, quite importantly. And now with, um, you know, all the, all the uh, advances in genome technology, we now have a very good sequence and, and map of the night parrot and to talk to us all about that we have leo joseph who is the director of the australian national wildlife collection at the csiro who um is talking to us all about the night parrot genome sequence uh the collaboration that it was and is and um and why it is important to sequence this particular parrot chris what do you have for us do you have anything um, as cryptic um, as that? No, nothing is as cryptic as the night parrot. You know you know that very well. Um, but no, I am following up on kind of a throwaway comment um, that Catriona <laughs> uh, and I wondered about uh, a couple of weeks ago, um, that time seems to be going very fast at the moment. It seems to be speeding up for many people, I think. Like, here we are, it is... It is, um, we're in already in mid-February. No, hang on, look at the calendar. Late February, as we speak. It just seems out of control. Don't you agree? It is. It's, it's out of control. So I'm interested to hear if you've got some science to, to bring us on this. Have some physicists been at it again? 
Well, um, I am going to look. It, I've looked into what the research series about it, and look, there's a lot of different kind of ways you can look at this. I've got to say, I went into this not entirely convinced it was a real thing, but there are enough articles written about this. Um, most of them with the headline, "Oh, it's not just you. Time really is speeding up, and here's what you can do about it." But you know, it's a, it's a. I can, I think it's a very good like standard story trope again beloved of everyone for their small talk so yeah i'll go that and what the what the science says and hopefully end this discussion once <laughs> and for all <laughs> let's get on with the show okay yes you are listening to lost in science and i am talking about time and why it appears to be speeding up. Um, look, it is really about our perception of time, I guess, is the thing that we're getting at here, which is one thing to me makes a bit confusing. But Claire, you said, what do the physicists have to say? So let's check in with the <laughs> physicists, first of all, on this particular conundrum. I mean, it was, so, a, it was a little bit tongue-in-cheek because I, I knew that you would check on what the physicists I, had to say. I always, I always check with them. You um, always you check with the physicists. I don't need to. They'll just tell me anyway. Yeah. Um, <laughs> look, okay, so the first question is, according to physics, basic question, is time speeding up? Yes. Uh, wow. Cosmologically speaking, that's, it is that's a up, yeah. That's a hard yes. It is a hard yes. So the thing is that in the early, when the universe was very young, time moved slower. So it's a little tricky. General relativity is Einstein's theory of general relativity, which describes gravity in the universe on large scales. It's kind of tricky, but put it simply, it's all about how gravity distorts space and time. And time slows down when there's a strong gravitational field. So it's, for instance, it's slower here on Earth than it is in space. Um, your feet, excuse me, setting up um, are slower in time than your brain. So, uh, and, you know, if you have strong enough gravitational field like a black hole, time actually stops. So, yeah, gravity slows down time. So, what you can think of it is that in the early universe, when the universe was very young, it was a lot smaller, things were closer together, gravity was stronger, and so time was slower. And so, yeah, time moved slower in the early universe. And, in fact, this has recently been measured. They've looked at... Um, distant quasars, which are these you know, very luminous objects from the early universe, and seen indications that time was indeed slower in the early universe. So tick, yes, time is speeding up cosmologically. Probably doesn't explain why it feels like it's, you know, February has gone so quickly. Right. Are you telling me that it's not speeding up to the extent that we would be able to perceive it? Yeah, I think so. I think that's okay. what I'm trying to say. Okay. Uh, um, in other kind of, I guess, physical things, as close to the other things, Cacciona speculated that perhaps um, the length of the day could be speeding up, you know, the Earth rotation perhaps. Mm. Um, now, this is a bit complicated. Overall, on the large scale, um, the Earth, the day, length of the day is actually getting slower due to tidal forces from the moon. We can look back at prehistory. Um, we can look at, like, at, you know, stromatolites, fossils, that show that about 600 million years ago, the day was only 21 hours in length. Um, so a day is getting longer, it's slowing down. However, in recent years, for some reason, 
the Earth has actually sped up. No one really knows why. It could be to do with climate change, even because of the shifting kind of water and ice around the Earth. Um, it looks actually might even reverse again, kind of it fluctuates anyway. But yes, the day has recently gotten shorter. So we can't actually, it, it could be the explanation as well. The days are getting shorter. Um, I don't wow. know if that's sufficient for you. Again, it's only a small bit. Um, but really, I think the answer we're looking for is about psychology because really time how we experience it is all about our perception of time and you know we measure time by events in our lives by clocks even maybe by the length of a day but if it's only like a millisecond or a microsecond you're not going to notice that so much um and this has been observed for a very long time um one of the i guess the the big theories is uh it's kind of put in the 1890s i guess there was a book by a philosopher psychologist, William James, who wrote that the same, as we get older, the same space of time seems shorter. Mm. Um, this is kind of the idea that like you have a young child, for a young child, a year is a very large proportion of their life. Sure, yeah. Yeah, um, but as you get older, it becomes less of a amount of your life. Right, of course, I mean, um... Yeah, for my daughter, a year is will be half of her life compared to, what, 140th. It's like, that's, yeah, 140th for, for me. Spoiler alert. I'm turning 40 yeah. this year. <laughs> I'm, I'm glad that we were able to remind you of your own. Not more oh, calibre, gosh. <laughs> Where is the time gone, Chris? Exactly. This is what I'm saying. This is what I'm saying. So, yeah, I think on the length of a life generally – we're all going to experience time speeding up as we yeah. as we get older, just from that simple kind of perspective sort of thing. But it is actually, I feel like it is more complicated than that. So people have also looked at the notion of how we, I guess, experience time based on what's happening in our lives. And so there's this thing that's been dubbed the holiday paradox. So basically the idea is, if you think about, you have a lot of new events happening, um while they're happening, um, rapid series of events, things can, in the moment, seem, can seem to be going um, very quickly. Right. Okay? Yep. Um, where, but then when you look back at them retrospectively, then it seems the things seem to have taken actually longer. Well, you look, we look, most of our lives we look back on. When you look back on it, it seems to have taken longer than it actually was because so much happened in that time. Mm-hmm. So it's kind of the more things happen in a short period of time, mm. the longer when we look back on it, it will seem to us. And so uh, this is why I think, you know, we at times comment, yes, time is going so quickly. It's because sometimes there's ne- not necessarily a lot of things happening. Like January right. is famous for like in our lives, things slow down. Um, and in general, even though we live in a world that seems to have, you know, so much going on, I had looked back and say that the news headlines from the 1st of January. Yeah. And it was the same thing. It's the same wars and international events that we are concerned with now were happening back then. So in some ways, even though there is a lot happening, people's lives are being affected, the things haven't changed a lot. It was still mm. the same circumstance. So the actual events haven't happened a lot. So, yeah, I think that to me that is the best explanation for why why time seems to be going very fast at the moment is because perhaps we are at the thing where we're not getting these 
new groundbreaking events. It might be worth thinking about, you know, back in say 2020 when time seemed to drag for a lot of people. And sometimes it was because there was a lot of stuff happening very too quickly, it seemed. And, mm. you know, there were like pandemics, there were ships getting stuck in the Suez Canal. There were like <laughs> all kinds of weird things going on. So, yeah, I don't know. I want to put that out there. This is what I think is the best explanation for what's going on. There's some other ideas about the way we process sensory information. To me, that seems a bit shaky ground. Perhaps there will be more mm. than that in the um, in the future. But, yeah, I think it is about how we remember time according to events. Um, but, yeah, remembering the big picture, time is going to speed up because you are getting older. We're all getting older. And I think you just have to, like, I don't know, go with the flow. Congratulations on your discovery, which may well prove to be among the most significant in the history of science. I cannot accept half-baked theories that sell newspapers. I'm, I'm a scientist. Who are you who are so wise in the ways of science? A most distinguished scientist whose name we know, even in the wild of Transylvania. Across Australia on the Community Radio Network, you are listening to Lost in Science. The night parrot is one of the most elusive birds in the world, thought extinct for much of the 20th century, and only fairly recently have a few individuals been found to be alive and well in the wild. Now, new research has just been published that has sequenced the genome of Australia's only nocturnal parrot, the night parrot, and to tell us about this huge step in conservation, we have with us this week Leo Joseph, who is director of the Australian National Wildlife Collection at the CSIRO in Canberra. Leo, welcome to Lost in Science. Oh, thank you. Thank you for having me. Now, um, why is it such a big deal that uh, you and your team have um, studied the night parrot's genes and um, published this genome? Um, how, what does it tell us about this rare bird? Um. Well, I wonder can I can I backstep a little bit to tell us tell a bit more about the night parrot? Yeah, so the night parrot was discovered for you know Western European sort of science in the middle of the nineteenth century, and it kind of disappeared uh, around about 1880, 1890. And so during the twentieth century, yes, there were people who who would say they thought it was extinct, but happily, I'm not one of them. It there were reports of night parrots, um, but the bar was very high for acceptance of the record of a record of a night parrot. If you if you say you went out and you saw a cockatoo that was pink below and grey on top, and you thought it was a galah, you know, not you wouldn't get a question. But if you said you saw a night parrot, well, you had to. The bar was high. Why wasn't it some other parrot? Why wasn't it this? Why wasn't it that? Was it in a tree? Was it? And so, the, because of the rarity that that commenced around the end of the nineteenth century, um, the bar was very high. Now, an analysis that's been done recently, all the reports of night parrots during the twentieth century, has weeded out the, you know, the bad ones and the probable ones and the good ones. So we know they we know that they were reported reasonably reliably during the twentieth century, but that's not to say there was not an aura of mystery and intrigue about this bizarre animal, which there certainly was. 
So for much of the 20th century, there was no decent information about them, and they were mysterious. And just the name, Night Parrot, you know, mm. it conjures up a little humour. It also conjures up, you know, a pretty unusual sounding parrot being active at night. Now, uh, in 1990, a, a dead one was found, roadkilled in southwest Queensland. And in 2006, another one was found in southwest Queensland, uh, dead under a fence. So this meant that, you know, that that helped focus the search. And um, John Young located them and announced it in 2013. And and since then, research has been done uh, by Steve Murphy, Nick Leesberg, and we know a lot about the biology of night parrots in southwest Queensland. And importantly, we know what they sound like and the kind of habitat they like. And that has led to rediscovering them in Western Australia. Right. They were known in Western Australia. So here we are. We've got um, a parrot that is in its own right pretty weird, nocturnal, living out in the desert, a um, bit of a ghost, but it's come back. For, you know, it's, it's, it's alive and reasonably well. Um, we know it's very closely related to some very similar-looking parrots, the ground parrots, eastern and western ground parrots. Um, we've had little bits of DNA that we've been able to examine relationships of those parrots to other parrots with. But now with a genome, it's like you have the full genetic blueprint is the term we often hear in around the place, or a road. I like to use a roadmap analogy. So we've by sequencing the genome, it's a bit like we've put all the roads of Australia on a map, but not the place names. We had to have the genome annotated um, at GenBank, where one lodges one's genetic results. And that is the equivalent of putting place names on the roads. It's like genes, you know, so so they've they've told us which genes are there and everything. So now we are in a position to get to answering your question, I guess. We're in a position to say, well, okay, what can we learn about uh, the genetic basis of the night parrot being nocturnal? We know from anatomical research that they're not quite as good with their night vision as ours are, yet they are nocturnal. So we know a bit from this sort of research in other birds about genes that are involved in night vision and um, other aspects of behaviour. So how does the night parrot stack up? Has it evolved uh, the same uh, mechanism to be nocturnal or has it evolved its own little uh, way of doing it? When it comes to conservation, I mean, that's great for the biology and enhancing our knowledge of its evolutionary history and so on because the, the genome tells us it's like a blueprint for how the species has managed to survive. Yeah. But on present-day timescales, you know, we need to stop feral cats eating. Yeah. <laughs> I, I like yeah. to keep my feet on the ground here. We, yeah. we need to know where the night parrots are. We need to understand their habitat. We need to know what they sound like. That's all improving. We need to stop feral cats attacking mm. them, which we know happens in Queensland and is probably a big part of why they decline. Um, the, the genome brings another sort of perspective to our conservation. It it helps us address genetic diversity. So we can measure genetic diversity from little scraps of that we have, such as feathers or bits of birds retrieved after a cat has killed them and so on. 
uh, a blood sample, for example, and we can get genetic information from that kind of material and we can estimate genetic diversity and whether it's high or low or whether the birds are, are inbred. And we can map that, that stuff onto the genome, onto the full roadmap, so that we know which part of the genome we're dealing with when we ask a question like, how much genetic diversity does the night parrot have? Is the population in Queensland down low on genetic diversity relative to the birds in Western Australia? Once we start getting into those sorts of questions, we can use the genome to anchor all that stuff. And then we can start thinking about whether we should or shouldn't be translocating individuals from one side of the continent to another, for example. You know, here and now we need to stop feral cats eating night parrots, right? Yeah. But we've got another, what is it, another arrow in our quiver uh, for things we can bring to bear on our understanding of night parrots. And that, that relates to genetic diversity and, and, and what makes them tick. Right. And so from what I understand about gene sequencing, this technology has been um, around for quite a long time, but um, obviously there's been breakthroughs and new technologies yeah. um, that have allowed yeah. um, this sequencing and, as you say, I guess the, the placing of the yeah. names of um, the towns yeah, on the map, yeah. Um, yeah. on the map of the night parrot. So can you Talk us through a little bit about um, the technology that is that that has been used for this. And over the last 30, 40 years, the technology's gone from indirect assessments of DNA by studying proteins straight to through to direct sequencing of DNA. And so, a few decades ago, we were we were using a, a method called Sanger sequencing, named after Mr. Sanger, uh, where you would you know, you'd sequence a particular defined stretch of DNA. The explosion in genomics methodologies, whereby you can sequence the whole genome and not, mm. not just a defined stretch of a, a thousand or so base pairs at a time, those technologies are rapidly evolving and are linked, I think it's fair to say, with the informatics that you use to assemble the stuff. So you, you end up sequencing little bits of DNA and you use informatics to put it all together. Those technologies have now progressed to the point where a genome can be done very quickly, mm. pretty cheaply. You may remember the human genome when it was done, what, 20 years ago? More. More, um, yeah. Massive effort, you know, because they were sequencing bits and bits mm. at a time, whereas now these technologies work differently and make use of informatics. Is it an extra challenge for you and your team, the fact that there are so few samples of these birds? Yeah. Um, you know, I mean, they're, they're cryptic yeah. and difficult to find in the wild, yeah. but also um, yeah. um, few, few museums um, would probably even have samples of um uh, right. Parrots. Yeah. Yeah. There's only about, I think it's just under 30 specimens in the world. And most of them were collected in the 19th century. And so we can get DNA from them, but it's still doing it hard. The, so what happened just in, in the last couple of years, this, this poor unfortunate night parrot flew into a fence in, in Western Australia. And the traditional owners uh, who recovered the bird have given permission for it to be studied um, and that bird actually went it's been mounted and it went on display at 
Western Australian Museum, Bulabatik, last week. Mm. But our collaborators at the Western Australian Museum sent us a little bit of tissue from that bird, and that's what we've done the sequencing from. Um, but yes, you're right. The um, the th that's that's one individual from which we've got good genomic data now. But um, to to study the population in Queensland relative to the population in Western Australia, you need samples from them, and um, that's where current currently we have. Um, fragmentary DNA from from them, and we've also obtained some DNA from an extinct South Australian population in the Gawler Ranges using museum specimens from the 1870s. So that DNA isn't as good, but we'll be able to map it to the to the genome and know what we're working with. What, in your mind, is is next for the uh, the night parrot research? Yeah, I mean, we want to mine the genome. We were talking today, I was talking with my colleague Anna Kearns about mining this genome for looking at how much variation is in it. And uh, that might give us an index as to levels of diversity in night parrots anyway. And even mm. we might even be able to start thinking about whether there's high levels of inbreeding. Um, so we want to certainly mine the genome, which sounds a bit ruthless, but anyway, we want to mine the genome for interesting biological data related to conservation and the bird's biology. Um, it will be a resource uh, to include in uh, major global initiatives to look at the relationships of the birds of the world, building a more accurate evolutionary tree of birds. And um, it's really important that that be publicly available, um, which it, you know, which it will be. Um, but we, we, expect that we'll be the the ones who you know get into it uh, quickest <laughs> we're very keen to you know start exploring the genome for interesting interesting biology and um there is another thing just an analogy i like to i like to mention when um talking about why the night parrot the genome is interesting for conservation I like to wax a little bit lyrical, and um, and I I notice we often see news stories about the astronomers ex extending their reach out to the far end of the universe, the limits of the universe, or you know what might be under the ice of a moon of Saturn or something. And it's exciting. We we love stories like that about what's way out beyond. But genomes take us the other direction. They dig right down into all the life around us. You know, they, they, when we get into the genomes of plants and animals and we see how they've evolved, how the genome has evolved, what's going on at the level of that evolution, I think that's another sense of wonder that uh, if we really take the time to think about it, um, helps us appreciate why we should conserve these amazing life forms, you know, whether they're plants, birds or bees, you know, they, they've all got genomes that have got them to where they are today and uh, long, may it, long may they proceed to evolve as they should, you know. Well, Leo, thank you so much for joining us on Lost in Science this week. It's um, so great to hear that through these new technologies and um, 
and genetic sequencing, we're able to understand so much more about this incredibly uh, rare and iconic bird, even though mm. they maintain, um, you know, they're, they're more elusive than ever. Um, so thanks. Oh, yeah. Thank you for having me. Science is recorded on the lands of the Kulin Nations and broadcast across Australia on the Community Radio Network with the kind support of the Community Broadcasting Foundation. If you'd like to get in contact with us, we'd love to hear from you. You can email us at lostinsight@gmail.com. You can find us on X, formerly known as Twitter, or Facebook, or just tune in wherever you find your podcasts or listen to us when Claire, Chris, Stu and Catriona get lost in science. Thanks for listening to a 3CR podcast. 3CR is an independent community radio station based in Melbourne, Australia. We need your financial support to keep going. Go to www.3cr.org.au for more information and to donate online.